I have this incredible bias towards thinking of learning as sort of an individual sport. You're there with a book or with a math problem or with a subject or with a piano, and your job is to work on it and progress on it individually. And I think the biggest thing I learned from work was how much faster I learned in the context of a team of people. I think learning by yourself for a lot of people, not just me, I don't think I'm that weird, but I think we learn so much faster and so much easier than we learn if we're trying to do this on an individual basis. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. From laying drywall to launching products at Google, Facebook, and Instagram, from learning meditation to meditating in public with Jewel, Ariana Huffington, and Sharon Salzberg, and from a little obsession with how people learn to building a new company helping people learn to change what they eat, this is Eric Antonow, co-founder of Metabolic. Tell us your name. What do you have for breakfast? <laughs> I'm Eric Antonow, and what did I have for breakfast? I had uh, a bowl filled with walnuts, blueberries, coconut oil, cinnamon, and chia seeds. I probably had that exact same thing for breakfast for about 120 days. 120 days? Yeah. No variance. How did you get to this breakfast uh, this, of choice? Um, I've been testing a bunch of different breakfasts, but the goal of this breakfast, it has no impact on blood sugar. I've tried other breakfasts to find ones that have no effect on blood sugar. This one happened to come from a guy who runs a Facebook group of diabetics. He's a type one diabetic, and he has tested this breakfast hundreds, probably thousands of times, and he wears a glucose monitor so he can see the effect on his blood sugar when he digests it, what it turns into in, into a, in his system and how it affects his blood sugar. So I tested this because he had done it for a bunch of years. I also wear a glucose monitor, not because I'm a diabetic, but I'm curious about how my body works. And um, so, yeah, that's what I had for breakfast. Wait, repeat it. I want to take notes. What's breakfast. in the breakfast? Yeah. I, I, so it is... A quarter cup of chia seeds mixed in water with a tablespoon of cinnamon, half a cup of walnuts, and, you know, a handful of blueberries. And I don't... Oh, and a tablespoon of coconut oil. I mean, basically... So the blueberries are the only... uh, They're the only only real carbohydrate. There's probably a little bit of net carbs in the... uh, in the very little in the walnuts and the chia seeds, but it's immaterial. Basically, it's a giant bowl of fat and fiber. Like, it's probably 50 grams of fat and... I don't know, enough fiber to, you know, to float a boat. It's a pretty interesting breakfast. And, uh, you know, a bunch of people have actually asked me about it, and I recommend it. Most people who eat it find it incredibly sort of stabilizing for their metabolism. Mm. But it's an acquired taste. It's not super sweet to each his own. And you have a cup of coffee with that? I don't. I have some tea or something. All right. Another part of the experiment was seeing what it was like not to have coffee, given that I've had that for a couple of decades in a row. So how many years are, or how, how many months are you into no coffee? Like I said, like about 120, 120 days. days. Yeah. I mean, these experiments are, you just do an experiment. Yeah. At the beginning of the experiment, I'll usually go take a full lipid panel, like see what my blood looks like. Yeah. And, 
and then I'll take a, another blood panel maybe every month or two months along the way, and then a blood panel at the end. And then you'll get a really concrete idea of what this combination of things, how your body reacts to them. I find that pretty interesting. So you can see how your cholesterol relax that reacts to them, mm-hmm. how your blood sugar reacts to them, whether there are any other markers that have a material effect. And you can also see viscerally how you feel during the day. Like, am I hungry before lunch when I eat this set of breakfast? Like before that, I was probably eating consistently for about 120 days, three eggs every day for breakfast. Pretty much that was it. So how do I feel differently now versus then? How do what's I see What's the answer? Uh, for me, uh, this breakfast works a little bit better for me. I feel a little bit more consistent energy. Uh, it also means I, you know, usually can grab an omelet for lunch and I feel great because I haven't had eggs twice in one day. <laughs> uh, so it frees up eggs for another meal. So yeah, that's breakfast. That's All a right. long answer to what I had for breakfast, but you asked the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, Eric at five years old? What were you eating for breakfast? Oh, Let's go back. Where were you? What were so you eating? I, Who was I, at your kitchen table? Yeah, so at five years old, I lived, my dad was a diabetic, so I lived with a diabetic, which meant we really had no sugar in the house, which felt like a, 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 like a form of deprivation when I was a kid. So we only had Special K or Product 19, I think were the only two cereals in the house. Sometimes like on a good day, we'd have Rice Krispies, but no sugar, yeah. so. And where, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Chicago, so downtown yeah. and uh, in a high rise, 30 floors up in the air. Siblings? Uh, two younger brothers. And where do they live now? They both live in Chicago still. So I live in Palo Alto, but they, uh, you know, one's a fireman, one's an attorney. All right. So what got you from Chicago out here? Yeah, I studied in the Midwest. I grew up in the West, yeah. Midwest. I lived in Chicago for you know, more than 30 years of my life. And I uh, went to Ann Arbor, for Ann Arbor, Michigan for school. And um, I came out here, I had done some, I'd been part of two startups in Chicago. And then I took a little bit of time off when my kids were born and then came out here to work for Google almost 11 years ago now. So tech in Chicago, Yeah. how'd you get into that? Like what was the path into the tech world? I don't think it was technology. Like it yeah. wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I, I grew up uh, with a computer in the house, which was odd. That was not normal. The, those were the first computers, like timing wise, there's like the first Apple computers, first IBM computers in the home, Commodore computers. So it was the very beginning of personal computers. We lobbied my dad to buy one. We spent most of the time playing games. Yeah. But uh, learned a little bit. I learned a little bit of programming at the time. So I had some background, but then didn't use it at all. Literally. I mean, I used it not at all outside of high school. I went to college. I don't even think I set up my email address at Michigan. So I just didn't, it didn't connect with technology for a good decade after high school. And then I, um, I didn't know, I had no idea what I wanted to do and I was pretty sure I wasn't good at anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, my first jobs were everything from, you know, I laid drywall for a little while. I ran a bookstore. When was this? Is this high school or college? Right after, right after college, so yeah. a couple years after college, I really, it was very unclear what I was good at it was very unclear what I was wanted. I didn't have strong desires that I can really remember, and and so I was. I just wasn't deeply turned on by anything, <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I just did anything that sort of 
was attractive to me. So I laid drywall for Habitat for Humanity for a while. I went and uh, found a small bookstore that I really liked and was part of a couple of people that helped run that. But it, that was really the people I really liked. And then I went and uh, worked for a music school, did operational stuff there, you know, balanced checkbook and the rest of it, as well as taught baritone ukulele mm-hmm. to five-year-olds. And then I met a person who was, uh, you know, who was a consultant and we had just a good set of conversations. He was doing some consulting work for the music school. You know, he offered basically to, uh, an apprenticeship, like if I wanted to work with him. I took him up on it and he was great. He was incredibly generous with his time and sort of took me as sort of a apprentice slash partner on a bunch of gigs. And I learned a ton. Um, and so that just convinced me that there was actually, there were interesting problems in business that were worth thinking about. But I, I think I was pro- I would have been pretty skeptical about that if, I, if it weren't for him. Mm. Tell me about like your, you in high school, you know, you see the, there's the sporty kids and the music kids and the creative kids, whatever you can label all sorts of things, but where, who are you? I mean, I distinctly remember being none of those people. There right. were all of those. Pe- there were all of those groups of people, <laughs> and I distinctly belonged to none of them. I didn't feel deeply connected to any of those groups, and I actually did none of those things. So I didn't do theater, even though we had a pretty strong dramatic school, and like I didn't do sports, even though we had good sports teams. And I'm not sure what other ones you mentioned, but no, I was not. Right. I was not deeply in any of those groups. I socially spent a little bit of time with each of those people, each of those groups of people. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. I don't think I felt really that connected to that. I made individual friends, but I didn't feel any connection to a particular type or yeah. group. I think it was just sort of pretty reflective. Again, there too, not really knowing what I wanted to do, not really clear about what got me excited. Other than I liked individual people, right? Like I would really connect with a like a really couple of very good friends that I loved hanging out with and spending time with, and whatever they wanted to do, I was like pretty cool doing. Yeah. But um, I really just connected with individual people more than anything else. What about your family growing up? Traditions, vacations, like that. You think back about stuff that you had as a kid that you tried to bring forward or not. <laughs> I think the biggest, so my parents were pretty different. Yeah. They were really different people with very different outlooks. My dad was older. He'd grown up in Chicago. When I was born, he was already 53. So he was like notably older than much, most dads. And he looked older too. So people would often mistake him for my grandfather. But he was also older in the sense that, you know, he just had a different perspective as an older person, both of his own mortality of, you know, of the world. And so that was one personality. And then my mom's personality was very different. She was younger. She was like in her mid-20s. And she was an immigrant. She grew up and born and raised in France. Pretty much had left uh, at a young age. A little bit like borderline running away. Um, so you have two very different perspectives on the world in the house growing up. They eventually got divorced roughly when I was around 12. And I think the strongest thing that comes out of that for my kids is just really recognizing that there isn't a single there isn't a single way to do things there wasn't a lot of it wasn't like i grew up with one family i grew up with two really strong opinions that were pretty different and i think that when i look at my own kids and well just look at my own family i view that like i have two children and my wife jennifer 
And I view it as like four people with pretty different opinions living under mm -hmm. the same roof. I think the family part is a little bit when you look at it at, at a distance. But uh, I think that's the strongest thing that came out of my growing up is like, like the pretty different opinions in a house rather than there's like a single vision of a family. Your mom coming from France, you talked about like kind of almost running away. Yeah. Did she go back much? Or like were you connected to the French side of her? So two separate things. Yeah. One is, you know, you grow up with a, um, a parent who, who's an immigrant and you sort of, you're making sense of that. You know, mm -hmm. the person has an accent. There's some contrition she's not familiar with. And you, you deal with some of that awkwardness as a child or you experience some of that. Everything from her not knowing what to make me for lunch uh, when I was in, you know, kindergarten or first grade and like me ending up with like a, an uncooked English muffin with <laughs> peanut butter spread on it. Because I, I said that the other kids were bringing peanut butter sandwiches and she's like, I have no idea what that is. And so she cut these, you know, Bay's English muffins in half yeah. and just slathered peanut butter on top, uncooked oh. English muffins. <laughs> and it was horrible. It was really the worst experience. And I was like, this is... <laughs> And uh, all kinds of funny things like that where it just was awkward. Um, so you have a, you know, one experience is this figuring out the, figuring out what this means for you. And then there's the connection back to her family and her parents, which was, I mean, we would talk to our grandparents on the phone. They spoke mostly French. My grandfather spoke a little bit of English. Um, but we talked to them on the phone once every three to six months. I mean, Long distance calls felt much more expensive back then, so it was rare. We went to visit them once every four years or something like that, so it wasn't annual, so it, very different ages. You know, I think we went and visited them when I was six, and then I think I saw them again when I was 10. They would come visit us a little more frequently, so I would see them sometime during the summer. But uh, it definitely felt like we weren't being raised in any sort of particularly French experience. We just sort of had a little a light connection to that. Uh, and later on, after I got done with college, I went and lived with my grandparents for a year, which was great. And where, where in, in Paris. Oh, in Paris. Yeah. So that was a ton of fun. I got to meet two people who I really didn't know, and I lived in their apartment or room off of their apartment and ate lunch with them, certainly ate breakfast with them pretty much every day for a year. They were already in my grandfather was probably 90 at the time. And my hmm. grandmother was in her mid-80s. So living with, I have two things. One, living with two older people and their patterns and their habits and their conversation was um, you know, great to be part of. But I also got to know uh, part of my family that you know, they ended up dying within two years of me leaving or a year of me leaving. So I would have had no connection to them whatsoever. And it also teaches you a little bit about your own parent and the environment they grew up in. And my grandparents also, I think, uh, had fun having me around. I mean, it was just, it yeah. was fun to have a young person around the house and uh, their grandkid around the house. And, uh, you know, I was right out of college. So I was, I mean, I was also like a complete, a little bit of a handful too. Yeah. They like wanted to know what time I was going to be home. And I was, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we worked together at Facebook for many years and then at Instagram. Um, and you talked about kind of not knowing what you were interested in yeah. when you were younger, but your ability to, when you are interested in something, go really deep. You know, like music, I, I remember asking you for, yeah. um, I think I was 
wanted to be exposed to like 70s. You sent me like the most detailed list of music to get into. Like, talk about that for you. Well, um, a little bit more abstractly, like yeah. I do think that, you know, if I find something I really enjoy, I think my bias is to become obsessive about it, right? To really experience everything I can about it. I don't know how long it'll last, you know, whether it's a writer or, you know, a piece of music or whatever it is. I, I, my, I think my orientation is to become pretty obsessive about it and really, and then at a certain point that'll stop. And then I, I like I've either exhausted my interest in it or I've exhausted the subject on some level and then I, that's it. But yeah, I think you're right. Like mm -hmm. I think my orient, that's my orientation, but it, it, music in particular has always been something that I think uh, I just get really connected to either a particular song or artist or genre or whatever. And, and for a period of time, I, I could pretty much follow it. I can follow yeah. all the trails until, until I just can't out. do it anymore. Right. Until I'm just either completely exhausted or I've exhausted the, the thread. Right. And what's your, what's your music right now? I think the most fun thing that's happened in the last three years or four years is most of the threads don't start with me anymore. Mm. Um, they start with one of my two kids. And I think one of the, I mean, I, I count as one of the great experiences or a set of experiences has been going to one or two concerts with my kids that they chose where I really didn't know the artist. I went in blind. And uh, two things, one, I found music I would, uh, unlikely to have found and get to experience it with them for the first time. Their experience, their, they know the, the artist of the songs, the rest of it. I mean, I remember three years ago now going to Chance the Rapper when he wasn't a star yet and we went and wasn't a big star and we went, uh, we went to the Greek Theater in Berkeley and my son was like, no, we have to go to this. And I think he was probably 10 or 11 at the time. So he was, we were standing in line with a bunch of college kids and he's 10 years old and he's like, no, this is the guy. And he knew the songs and was deeply moved by all of them. And it's a combination of gospel and hip hop and pretty, I, I consider like pretty powerful stuff, like really great music. And to see him as excited and as into something he loves. And also me hearing most of these songs for the first time. I mean, I think he probably played a couple in the kitchen before we left that night. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is pretty good stuff. And, but to have that experience with him the first time was just, there's no better pleasure than that. And not dissimilarly, my daughter, and this was my daughter, I think went to a concert with my daughter when she was six and she wanted to go see One Direction, which also wouldn't have been something, I mean, I think I may have heard anecdotally on the radio or something, but I wouldn't have discovered without her. And to go experience that with her is more, I just, I think those sort of vi very visceral, direct, like this is who I am is what mm -hmm. they're sort of telling you. And you're like, okay, this is what you love. These are your, these are the people that love it with you. This is the artist that yeah. you get most excited about. That's a, that's a mm -hmm. great experience. Have you had any like music influences that really stand out to you much more than others? I, I, you know, it would just be this long, <laughs> long list. Right. It would be this long, long list of weirdos. Right, and it would sound like, I promise you, it would sound like it was intentionally eclectic. Mm. Right, like, oh my God, you like this person and that yeah. person, I'm like, I, yeah, I guess at some point I did. Yeah. At some point I liked somebody at that extreme of, you know, blues right. and that extreme of so-and-so. And I, and I can't tell you, and sometimes it's a song, yeah. right? It's not even a, it's not an artist. 
And I, and, and again, I mean, there may, there may be something I enjoy about having just a pure eclectic yeah. thing. Yeah. Like, oh, I mean, I like having this range of music because there's some ego in it. There's yeah. some, you know, thing that I find cool about that. But that's not most of it. I think yeah. most of it is just like there are songs that I, you hear the song and it resonates with you and you're just like, that says something that either I knew to be true or I'd never heard of before and now I yeah. think is true or you know feels really true to me. Yeah, and it's just the full range of everything. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a like a genre of music where I haven't been like deeply, deeply touched. Yeah. What about like learning? So you've done interviews on how people learn. I remember when you taught yourself piano. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to learn a number of instruments by myself, right. and I've tried to figure out. I mean, I've tried to understand how to do that. The goal isn't to learn piano. The goal is to learn how you could learn piano, yeah. right? Which is, you know, I, I think I, and I think there's probably plenty of other people that don't naturally incline some way, right? Yeah. You don't naturally, like, oh, I know I'm, you know, at six, I knew I was gonna be a doctor, yeah. right? Or whatever, or even, you know, you graduate from college and you have some incredibly clear vision about the path of your life. You know, mine is much more, you know, feeling my way in the dark, mm. much more bumbly. Back to piano, there was much more about how do I go about learning piano. Yeah. My, I know I'm not a brute force learner, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like lock yourself in a room five hours a day and play and practice and practice, practice. There are some percentage of people that can learn by sheer force of will and dedicating time. And as opposed to pushing myself, I like I need to, I need to be pulled into something, right? Something mm -hmm. has to pull me is probably a better description, like right. a piece of music or something I like. So that I knew to be true. I'm not, I can't force, I couldn't force myself to memorize things in school. That mm -hmm. never worked for me. I generally uh, like use the approach that I would find things that I liked a lot and let them pull me and let those things pull me into it. I'd find a writer that I'd like in English and then I could like that English class, right? Mm -hmm. But what I think I learned with the piano stuff and what I've learned a lot since then is I have this incredible bias towards thinking of learning as sort of an individual sport. You're there with a book or with a math problem or with a subject or with a piano, and your job is to work on it and progress on it individually. So that was, I think, my thesis for a long time or the way I oriented myself. And I think that's the way most of us orient in school, right? We're taught, you know, you have individual grades. You've, it's an individual project, most of learning. And I think the biggest thing I learned from work from being in places like Google and Facebook, Instagram, and jobs before that, was how much faster I learned in the context of a team of people. I don't know what the magnitude is, but it's probably at least three, if not five times faster than I learned on an individual basis. So like I, I that's the biggest shift for me. I actually, it is unclear to me. I think learning by yourself for a lot of people, not just me, I don't think I'm that weird, but I think we learn materially faster in the right group, mm. the right collective of people. Maybe it's three people, five people, 10 people, whatever it is on the right team. We learn mm. so much faster and so much easier than we learn if we're trying to do this on an individual basis. So when I want to go learn something new, my bias right now is to find a group that's doing it. I just think you learn so much faster. On the learning side, Going from not knowing what you wanted to do to having some some pretty serious jobs at Google and Instagram and Facebook, like what was it about those jobs where you where you were really in your element? So before I went to Google, I was uh, started with a couple other people, a small software company in Chicago, 
and we built it up over about five years to about 20 people and then we got acquired. When I was done with that, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I sort of, I had my first real experience running a decent sized team, running an organization. And uh, when, I got a, when I went to Google, you know, when I joined, I had a very I had a modest team. I had three people reporting to me. I felt what I was going to learn there was like, how do I operate inside? Of, how do I operate inside a bigger organization? What I got out of the experience at Google was entirely different. From my point of view, I got to learn with some of the smartest people I had ever bumped into. I felt pretty honored to work with people that reported to me on my team. I felt pretty honored to be, you know, reporting to various people that just had really different ways of doing things. And I think I learned very quickly that just watching them work, watching how they made decisions, watching how they ran meetings, watching how they thought through problems was an incredibly fast way for me to learn. I was really, I felt really lucky to be able to like, to see that happen. When I went to Google, we were already roughly 10,000 people. And so just even to understand what it was like to be inside a larger organization was pretty, it was a completely different set of problems. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, anytime you would launch something, you would launch them in 40 languages, 40 countries, many more countries. All of the problems were just at a completely different scale. And, and you, you went do, into, so you went into product marketing, yeah. right? And before you were kind of founder of the startup. Right, so yeah, I was. I mean, again, so, I didn't have. I wasn't yeah. particularly good at anything, to be clear. <laughs> like I wasn't. Thank you. I didn't. Okay. I didn't. No, I, I didn't. I mean, like I at the company before, I effectively default was uh, the front of the house person. I was the salesperson for the organization because we were, you know, fifteen engineers, a designer, a PM, a whatever, and then and then me. So I was on a you know Southwest flight to every small and medium sized city in the country. 150 days out of the year selling software. And so I became the salesperson. I wasn't good at sales beforehand, but I got good Figured at it pretty it quickly. And so when I went to Google, I didn't have any skills like that it were obvious. I but mean, they hired you. Well, they sort of hired me. It took a long time. Like they, uh, yeah, it took uh, four or five months and 17 interviews for them to actually say like, I think we'll have you. And when it got to the end, there was three. There were three options that they sort of made me choose from: whether I wanted to work in uh, business development, sales, or product marketing. And from the people I talked to, who I did know there, who were incredibly helpful, they 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 really explained that product marketing would be the one that was most closely tied to the product organization, which was most closely tied to the way the organization thought. And I really wanted to learn from, like I said, the people and the culture and what it was like to be steeped in this thing. And so I did, yeah, I mean, I sat in the sort of center building of campus for, for at least half my time there. And then so you, product marketing became yeah. your calling for a while. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I ran, uh, I was responsible for product marketing, which was, like I said, a relatively small team, uh, uh, product marketing for an area called client, yeah. which was all the software, the software that was sort of resident on the, desktop on the computer rather than entirely delivered over the cloud. So that was, um, you know, at the time it was Google Toolbar and desktop and yeah. a few other products. Um, and it eventually became, when we launched Google Chrome, that became a product that was under that same team. 
And then fast forward a few years, and you're responsible for a little product called Facebook. Well, that, <laughs> so but you know, it was yeah. very. This was all very, yeah. uh, you know, organic. Like, and 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 I really the this was all just really good fortune and really good people, right? So I had three really great people on my team, you know, John, Joyce, and Mendel, and yeah. they taught me everything I needed to know. My manager at the time, a woman named Debbie Jaffe, was like the best manager I could have learned from. She was just like so different than anybody I'd ever interacted with. And then we reported up into Marissa Meyer at the time. And so, you know, occasionally we have meetings with her to discuss stuff. So I got to learn from her. My counterpart, so I was product marketing, the product person I was paired with, which was a guy named Sundar Pichai, who ended up post-Chrome going to being responsible for large parts of the organization, eventually now CEO of Google. But those were the people I got to learn from. And uh, spend time with. And then there were other people in the marketing organization, um, David Lowe at one point, and Lorraine, and Tuhill. And so I just, yeah, I got to watch really exceptional people work. And like I said, it, as many of those people were the people who I managed, as well as the people who managed me. Um, and then partway through that, I also became responsible for the developer side, uh, the product team, marketing team that responsible developers marketing, which was all of our APIs and our big developer events. And so my counterpart there was uh, Vic Condotra. And so that was also very interesting too. I wasn't a deeply technical person, but had to learn enough to be able to work with a developer team. And so those are just two different experiences. One was sort of a consumer marketing experience. One was a developer marketing experience. You know, that entire thing was three and a half very intense years. Uh, and I, like I said, it was mostly just like learning from other people yeah. that... By the, time I, by the time I was done with that, I think I did know something. Yeah. Like, meaning I had some skills in product marketing because I had done enough, you know, I had done enough on the consumer side and seen other projects, you know, seen my peers launch stuff and market stuff. And I likewise, I had done enough on the developer side. So when, when I did get the inquiry from Facebook, it wasn't crazy that I would go take something on in product marketing. I'd done that, enough of that that I you know, felt somewhat confident in it. I remember at Instagram, we had the mugs for you, the do less mugs Yeah. Remember that? Because one of the things I remember the most is the, the focus on simplicity from you and, and on focus and making sure we were doing, doing the right things and not spreading ourselves thin. Yeah. Is that a philosophy that you have in, in general or is that specific to the environment? Well, there was some part of it that was specific to envir the environment at Instagram. So we should talk about that for right. two seconds, yeah. which was, you know, Mike and Kevin did have a very focused and simplicity oriented ethic. And I think that was at the core of what they built. And I think that shows. So mm -hmm. that, that was definitely, there was part of that, which was very clearly in the Instagram culture. And I think that that's one of the things that made it pretty exceptional. The second part of it, do less, was something that, in most of these environments, certainly I learned at Facebook and Google, et cetera, which is there's a handful of the things that really matter. And then there's a lot of other things that we spend our time on. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand that, particularly when you have scarce resources, scarce time, the most important part of your job is what's the most important thing I could communicate to somebody? What's the most important piece of collateral I could build that would communicate that one thing? And when you and I would sit down and, you know, uh, people from either a partnership team or community team, we would look at all these things we want to accomplish in a, a quarter or a year. 
And it was this laundry list. I mean, all these teams would come back with amazing ideas. Well, we want to do this project at this museum, and we really want to do this incredible thing with this you know, artist or whatever. We'd have these incredible ideas. And, and we did many of them. We did so many of them, it was a little nuts. But you still, at the end of that planning process, there were 73 things that people wanted to do, and you're like, well, what's the one thing that you think you'd be most proud of if we got done? What was the one thing that would change the course, the arc of the organization or the brand or the product? What would really help? If you can put more of your energy towards that one thing and just be like, yeah, if I get that thing done really, really well, then I can go do these other things. What that, have you that's learned a, I think from that's a valuable tool at anywhere. All the companies that you were part of were going through a lot at the same time. Like being too many things, too many choices, always scarce resources, even though the outside world probably thinks that there's not scarce. Like there's always too much to get done. Deciding on that one thing for people who are going through that and still in it, what have you learned or your filters? Like, how do you how do you make that call? Because it, it is getting from that seventy three to one. Like, what are the questions you ask yourself, or the things you've learned about how to filter it down? I don't have any abstract filter. I know the process that we would use. I mean, I think we would usually argue, which would say, <laughs> which would basically say, make the case for me why if we do this, it changes the world on the other side. Meaning, it it really has a dramatic impact on the way. We tell our story, people interpret our story, people understand us. How in that very brief time that they've given us their attention, can we do our best job of closing the gap between what we know and where they are? And as we go through that list of 73, which of these items has a real chance of crossing that gap or closing that gap? And that's, I think, the problem we tried to solve. I mean, that's at least yeah. how we oriented ourselves towards the problem. And I think just, our, I mean, we argued most of this stuff no, out. No, I, I was just thinking about that. And I think, because I think a lot of times those decisions can get lost in formal structures and process. And one of the things that I remember doing a lot, you did a lot of walking meetings. You did a lot of meetings with your pencil in your ear and your single piece of paper where there was... You've always got these symbolic items to me. Maybe they're not symbolic to you, but you've got your pencil, your like little piece of paper. We're going on a walk. Yeah. You're probably wearing the same sh- the, the same style of shirt that you were wearing the day before. Yeah. Yeah, so that to you might not be that interesting, but it's interesting to me because it's not that common. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I won't say I took a lot of flack for it, but I definitely <laughs> became, it was common set upon enough time. I, I just... I wore the same outfit of clothing every day. When I moved here to the Valley, it was pointed out to me that that there were other people that did this too. But if you want the clearest picture of what it was like to be five years old, for me, the most disappointing thing about being five is that you had a favorite t-shirt or a favorite shirt and you couldn't wear it every day. Mm -hmm. And so I I remember when I had this t-shirt that I thought was an amazing t-shirt that had an iron on on it. And I was like, that's an amazing t-shirt. At one point, there was a Bears jersey that I had, which was like the most coveted thing. And I was like, I would argue with my parents, why can't I, since it's the best shirt, why can't I wear it every day? And they'd say, well, it gets dirty and we have to wash. I was like, well, can we wash it while I'm sleeping? I mean, I really wanted to wear the same, because it was the most comfortable shirt or it was the thing, something I identified with the most, but there was a best thing. Yeah. So the minute I got control over my wardrobe, which arguably <laughs> wasn't until my wasn't until my early thirties, I just would find an, uh, something that I liked that was the most comfortable thing to wear, 
and I would just buy, you know, a bunch of N of, N of that, right? Mm. Ten of that or whatever it was. So yes, there are some things that seem totally reasonable to me, and yeah, yeah and probably I've, you, looking at them, they seem a little more odd. I um, like it. Let's actually skip to metabolic. Sure. And, and what you're doing now. Metabolic is uh, really started by Jonathan Geller, and I joined yeah. him uh, relatively early on. The goal is to build uh, a program and a set of tools to help people change what they eat. Many people, either for health reasons or um, simply want to change their diet or change how much they weigh, they turn to usually diets to try to get through that, to try to go through that change. And um, it's mostly ineffective for people. Most people struggle to change what they eat, even when they have a lot of intent, even if when they have like a huge motivation, like it'll change their, how long they live or how much they'll suffer. Even with those motivations, people struggle and most people fail to change what they eat. So we wanted to build a set of tools that made that easier. So that's, that's the core of what metabolic is. And how far along are you in the process? We're pretty early, yeah. but we've gotten uh, remarkable, we've made remarkable progress in the short time that we've been working on it. You can think of changing what you eat as like, if I want to change my diet, there's like what to eat, like what should I be eating? And then there's another problem which sort of overlays that, which is how do I change? It's very similar to what we talked about learning. Like how would you learn? Yeah. Well, I was thinking like your, your 180 day diet that you're on, like oh, having the discipline to do that is weird is not very common no that's not common and, i think yeah and, but even but here, here's the part that's not that weird is like the only thing i'm changing is one thing the way that we've designed this is you know if you're going to change anything you make the smallest possible mm -hmm. edit so most diets fail because they ask people to make multiple changes at once so if i went to you david and i said hey guess what david you're gonna have to wear all purple from now on you're going to have a big purple hat, purple shirt, purple tie, purple pants, purple underwear, purple socks, purple shoes, <laughs> a whole bit, because that's what's going to take to be healthy. You'd be like, I'm not a clown. Yeah. So yeah. you would probably, even if you tried to wear that for a week, you would it, you would reject yeah, it. No. It's not I you. I might wear purple socks. So It's about as much as you can get. So there I would say, you know what, why don't we try purple socks? So instead, I think the metaphor, if the approach we would take is we would look through your entire everything you eat. Um, and we ask people to take pictures of everything they eat for a period of time. And, uh, you know, after a week, we're like, here's the one thing, one thing, you can change this one thing, and it'll actually have an effect. So we say, let's do purple socks for a month. You wear purple socks for a month. May seem a little weird the first couple of days, but after a week or two, you're the purple sock guy. Like, people actually know you as the guy. And it's not a big deal. Like, most people don't see the most days, but when you cross your legs or something, they're like, oh, purple socks. <laughs> David, yeah, again, yeah. purple side. So eventually, it's both not too big an edit, and secondly, it becomes over time part of your identity. After a month, it is weirder for you to not wear purple socks than it is to wear purple socks. And so that's an edit that is modest if it has an impact. So most people, when they make a change in their diet, if we find the right thing to change, they'll change one thing about breakfast, for example, mm -hmm. they'll lose between five and 15 pounds in 30 days if it's the right change. So we make a small edit. And then after the socks, after a month, we're like, David, how do you feel? And David's like, I lost, I lost seven pounds and I feel great. I've got better energy all day just by wearing these purple socks. It's like, great, we got one more change for you. Shoelaces, could you do shoelaces? And you're like, I guess I could try shoelaces. You try shoelaces, 
And a month later, shoelaces are not so weird. And you feel better and you've lost a little bit more weight and you go and did a lipid panel and your HDL is up, you know, 15 points and your LDL is down and your triglycerides are down and your A1C is normal. You're like, this is amazing. And all I did was socks and shoelaces. And for, many, for some people, they may be done. Those are the only two edits to make. Now, if I had signed you up for a diet, I would have said, now here's a black list of all the things you can't eat. And here's a white list of things you should eat. However, I structured it. It's a very dramatic change. It's not the smallest possible edit. In addition, I'm only asking you to make an edit. I'm asking you to make a single edit for a whole month. By the time a month is over, it's actually part of who you are. It's actually part of your identity. I actually can't think of anything that's a stronger expression of identity than what you eat, what you put in your mouth, what turns into your muscle, your bone, your cells. Like that is your identity and what you, whether you, I just love bread or I'm just like, I have to, I'm not myself without yeah. coffee. Those are huge statements of identity. And I do think that making changes to identity is really, really hard. So if you're going to do it, you've got to find the pieces that really will impact them positively. So when you say, hey, I can't imagine there's too many people that could eat the same breakfast for 120 days. Well, I'm not changing anything else. My lunch, my dinner, I'm not making any other edits during that time. I'm not trying to change my shirt, I'm not trying to change anything else about my life in that time. So far, this has been really effective for people. So it is important what you eat. I'm not saying that, but the how to change is actually more important. And this is learning. This is, we can go back to the kind of, if you want to return to the conversation on learning, Learning is actually about changing your identity. It's about changing what you're good at. It's about changing how you think of yourself. Are you a math person? Like, are you good at math? Right? And you're like, oh, well, not really. I mean, I can do it, but I'm not really a math person. Those are identity. Those are statements of who you are. So how many employees do you have now? What's metabolic look like? Total, about 12 people. Yeah. But still pretty early. We're still in really a little bit like it's about one year in. How do people use it? If people are interested, what do they do? The simplest thing is it's a, the, there's an app that lives on your phone and you take a picture of everything you eat before you eat it with the app. Um, within a couple of minutes, a nutritionist somewhere has scored that for you know, carbohydrates, fats, proteins. So your mm. journal is maintained automatically. And then after about a week, we can look for most of the obvious patterns. We can look at the things that are affecting your body throughout the day. We can see your best days and your worst days. We can see what may have triggered those events. And then we can make that one switch, the shoelaces or the socks. And so then we deliver a recommendation to you mm. and you go make that one edit. And then you keep taking pictures of everything you eat. And then a month later, we can see how that edit changed all the other meals that you ate. So it's generally taking pictures of everything you eat, us being able to recommend one fix at a time, and then you doing that fix for a month. And if you're trying to, like, if I was to do it and I was interested in, like, athletic performance more than weight, can you adjust we to can. those things? We absolutely can, but that's not the focus. Not the the focus yeah. is people that uh, either want to lose weight meaningfully, meaning they want to lose weight for a long term. They're not looking to yeah. lose 10 pounds because the seasons have changed or they have an event. They right. want to uh, feel better at, look better at. It is, is about long-term uh, chronic solutions, meaning I wanna, I've been struggling to lose 30 pounds for a long time. I want to lo lose this and I don't want to be uh, white-knuckling a diet for the next 10 years. 
So it's people that want to end a chronic problem. And then secondly, it's for people that are either, that feel like they're pretty anxious or concerned about chronic disease in their life. So chronic disease is, it kills more people. So heart disease, diabetes, stroke, most of the cancers, all those are downstream from what you eat. And, you know, the goal for what we're doing is to reduce that as much as possible through diet. And it's pretty material. I mean, there's, you know, in the U.S. population, there's a third of the population that's, that's obese. 30 million people are diabetic. There's probably close to 100 million people that are pre-diabetic. So these are like, this is Big large numbers. swaths of the population that are struggling with chronic disease risk. And a lot of it, and more so than with exercise, a lot of it can be mitigated by changes in diet. It's just really hard to change. On parenting, you talked about kind of seeing your kids in their element. You know, what have, what have you learned about managing it, about finding ways to really connect with your kids? I think I had a slightly different imperative than most people do about uh, being a parent and being present because my dad died when I was 20 years old. So it was my last year of college. He had diabetes and right. he was sick for the last three to five years. He was live, both had two strokes and had heart disease. So he was... Shot up close. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. So that experience, so missing a, a chunk of my, of my mm-hmm. time with him... And then, you know, the next couple of years, like my early years of being an adult and having all these experiences and lots of questions. And as I said, you know, broad uncertainty about purpose right. and like capability and like, what the heck, like, what, how are you supposed to solve any of these problems, right? How are you supposed to figure out like, what's the best way to spend your time? Like, what are the mistakes that I should, I mean, shouldn't make? I didn't have, uh, I mean, there were so many great people around me and I think I found uh, good people to get advice from and like just some wonderful mentors. But that aside, I didn't have a dad. And um, it wasn't because he was working all the time. It wasn't because he was not there. He wasn't alive. So there's a certain imperative as I had kids that I thought about it pretty differently in terms of the, there's a massless hierarchy of needs like in that I just knew that I really wanted to be present as a parent. I didn't know how long I was going to be around. I assume a little longer, (laughs) but I didn't know. And I was just like, well, I just want to really enjoy this. And I really want them to enjoy this. And I want to have as much time with them as possible. So even though I had very intense jobs, I allocated my time pretty well during that because it was the most important thing to me Mm -hmm. was to be a good parent and a good husband and I think I did a passable job at maybe, hopefully you'd have to ask them <laughs> if I did a passable job at either of those things. But that was really important to me. What about traditions or kind of things you've instilled with the family? Are there certain things that you would say the kids would probably reflect on when they're older? We don't have a ton of traditions in our house. And I'm, I think both my wife and I are like pretty aware of that absence. Her family has a certain way they celebrate Christmas and so grateful to plug into that every year. Mm. And it's like, it's an amazing production that her mom puts on, mom and dad put on. That's awesome. I mean, I think the tradition, I'll, I'll pick one that's a little bit weird, but it is ever since my kids were maybe five or six, I would take them out to a parking lot and I would let them drive the car for 45 minutes. Um, and I, we would probably do it once or twice a year some regularity and I have videos of my daughter driving at five or six just having a total blast and you know uh they felt this like incredible power to be at the steering wheel 
And uh, I, I loved giving them that sense of like, you're not that different from me. Like you are, an, you are an adult in the same way I'm an adult. I mean, maybe I'm less of an adult than they are, but like, <laughs> I really wanted them to feel like, I don't think you're that different. Like you may be a little bit, your legs may not be long enough to do all the technical things right now, but you're, I, you're inhabiting the same world I am. There's the same risk, there's the same fear, and I want you to calibrate against that. And so every year I've done that. And this year, actually, it's really funny. My, my son, Ben, is pretty tall. He's probably 5'7 now, and he's 14 years old. So this year we went and did it, and he couldn't fit on my lap. And he, <laughs> I sat in the front seat, and I'm like, come sit down. And he looked at me like, he looked at me like, are you crazy? This is, first of all, it's weird. Second of all, like, it's not going to work. I'm like, no, 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 you should try it. And I pulled the seat back, and the seat just gave up. Yeah. And, I was, and he's like, I'm just going to drive. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. And so I moved over to the passenger seat and we're in this parking lot. Now, granted, there's still trees and, yeah. you know, other things. And he's like, I got it. I'm like, here, like for the first part, it's all break, no gas. You know, for the first 10 minutes, I just want you to calibrate against like how the machine works. And and he did it. And all, like there's a, he he can be a pretty happy go lucky guy, but he was dead serious. He's like, I got this like an yeah. incredible focus and. That's the tradition I want, which is I want you to know that I've always, like I've always tried to set it up and I'm sure I've not been successful, but I've tried to set it up so you felt like you were a full person, a full adult. My job as a parent is on some graduated basis to expose you to the danger, the awesomeness, the wonderfulness, and the, yeah. uh, and the risk of being in the world and the full ownership that comes with it. Like that to me is, the, the hard part of being a parent is yeah. like slowly giving up those things, but giving up in a way that actually it's not slowly, it's as aggressively giving up that control so they feel as much ownership as possible. But obviously in the context of not creating like completely outsized risk for them. I hope uh, both my daughter and my son feel like, you know, I have interacted with them where it's not different than I would interact with any other person. I don't view them as children. Yeah. So meditation, why don't you talk about meditation first, what it's meant for you and sure. then how that's gotten into some of the fun projects you've had. Well, so, so I didn't have meditation as any part of my life until pretty recently, a couple of years ago. So, and it was completely accidental. I was watching a comedy special basically and it, on YouTube and it rolled into a, a benefit of Jerry Seinfeld trying to raise money for the David Lynch Foundation. And he gave a 10 minute a 10 minute pitch for how he's meditated every day for the last 40 some odd years and particularly how it provided him with uh enormous amount of rest to be able to do what he was able to do producing a show acting right. being a stand-up comedian and so i went and uh you know learned a meditation technique and almost immediately uh started to do it every day which is weird like i mean just it became part of what i did every day and the more I did it, the more I, uh, you know, it was important to me. And I was like, wow, this is pretty transformative. It really changed the way I operated most days. I felt incredibly well rested, totally clarified. It's like probably like what some people get out of a cup of coffee. It was that different an experience. And I was like, it's really weird that more people don't talk about this. And so anecdotally, I, you know, people be like, what have you learned in the last year since you've, you know, you know, since you left Facebook or whatever. And I'm like, oh, actually meditation. Most people be like, oh, I meditate. And I was like, how, we've known each other for a decade. How did you not tell me this? And everybody, I 
this happened enough times where I'd run into people who I'd known for quite a bit of time and I thought I knew quite well. And this was something that they had kept deeply, you know, some way private, almost like they were ashamed of it. And, uh, and that seemed weird to me. And so I was like, well, how do we fix that? How do we make it? It seems arbitrary that it's private. Right. Somebody would like, it's like people tell you that they do CrossFit. Right. Right. Like that's not, (laughs) but why is, why is this something that people hide? And I think there's historical reasons, but it's pretty arbitrary. So I decided, well, how would we make it, you know, how would we make it public? And I, without going into a lot of detail, I was like, I'll just broadcast myself on Facebook one day, Facebook live and me meditating. And I broadcast, I just put my phone down one morning at six o'clock in the morning. I was meditating, showed myself meditating live. And like 400 people watched it and people like all these comments and people were like, you just, you know, you're so brave. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But, you know, I got all this amazing feedback and uh, my reaction was like, oh, well, there, I guess that's all you need to do is people need to see it. And all of a sudden it becomes a little more normal. So I started this idea of basically a talk show where there's no talking, where there's just two people meditating. And so I went, uh, you know, sat down with a couple of people one-on-one and, I just sat and meditated with them live on Facebook. And uh, and it turned into something I branded it PubMed, public meditation. And the next thing it's you know, you're off. meditating with Jewel. Ariana Huffington. And yeah. Jewel. <laughs> so then I, somebody else connected me with somebody, and I did a PubMed with some public figures, mm-hmm. Monet- uh, uh, Jewel and Ariana Huffington and Sharon Salzberg and a bunch of other cool people. and talked to people at Headspace and they started doing it. So it's it's a little something, but I, I really would encourage anybody who has a mm-hmm. private meditation practice, just take it public in some way. Just go do it in a Starbucks or on an airplane or whatever and you know, eventually it'll become more normal. I think at the high level, I just think it's a, no matter what the particular practice is or the way you approach it, it's a, it is ludicrous to me that we don't have a pretty simple form of daily mental hygiene, the same way we... And for our kids. Yeah, yeah. our kids too. Yeah. We would say to our kids, yeah, you've got to do something physical every day. I yeah, you've you got exercise, to... you got to eat well. So you we know. understand those things and the fact that we don't have a, a pretty accepted practice for some form of... And I'm not advocating for meditation being the only way to do it. And there are right. many different approaches to schools, meditation. But some sort of reflective practice that uh, allows your mind and your psyche to be in a healthy state. Um, and there's something to do. So I don't think anybody would say there's nothing to do, but there is some, there's some way that you, you know, either reset or tune or exercise your mind. And investing that seems like a pretty big deal. Thanks to Eric Antonow for joining today. I thought I knew everything about Eric going into this, and it was such a great reminder how much there still is to learn, even from the people you're closest with. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.